the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Here he was in an equally dangerous public setting, standing before thousands of Messiah-rejecting individuals who could very easily have attacked him in the 120, brought them before the Roman authorities for crucifixion, execution. But in spite of all of this going against Peter, Peter gave not only his first sermon, he gave a great sermon, one of the greatest sermons in all of church history. And he delivered it with incredible boldness and courage, resulting in thousands of those who were once enemies of Christ coming to faith in Christ that very day. If you want an example of the ideas an effective sermon should contain, you won't find a better one than the one that Peter preached at Pentecost. And that's our topic today and for the next several days on Verse by Verse. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today he's launching into a fresh series of messages about one of the greatest sermons ever given. It was so effective that by the power of the Holy Spirit, about 3,000 people trusted Christ that day. Our text is in the second chapter of the book of Acts, so grab your Bible if you can and let's get started. Here's Pastor Steve. The first time a man gives a sermon can be a very frightening experience. It can be nerve-wracking, unnerving I know that I was extremely nervous the first time I ever gave a sermon. In my experience, I know it's not unique because over the years, I've observed many young men go through the same kind of anxiety that I had when I gave my first sermon. And one of the reasons for such nervousness is because usually sitting in the audience is your pastor, someone you've heard give hundreds of sermons And it can be a little intimidating to have him there because you really don't know what you're doing. And you know that he knows that you don't know what you're doing. And you feel as if he's going to critique every word that you are about to say. Now, imagine if you were called upon to give your first sermon and sitting in the congregation was one of the greatest preachers of all time. Well, that was the experience of students who attended Charles Spurgeon's Preacher's College. It seems that one of the requirements of this college was that they made each student give a sermon to Mr. Spurgeon and the staff of the college. And what's more, the way they did this was by giving the student a text right on the spot. He didn't have any time to prepare, and then they had him preach right then and there to Spurgeon, who, by the way, was known as the Prince of Preachers. Talk about intimidating. Well, On one of those occasions, a student was given the subject of Zacchaeus to preach on. You know Zacchaeus, the wee little man. 
Here's what the student did. He stood up before Mr. Spurgeon and his staff, and he said this, and I quote, Zacchaeus was of little stature, so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, so am I. Zacchaeus came down, so will I. And with that, the young man sat down, and that was it. That was his sermon. Well, I say at least he had three points and some application, but that was his sermon. Now, as rough as that must have been, I don't think anyone can top the bad experience of Ron Walters, who's the vice president of Salem Radio. I've met Ron, and his experience in preaching his first sermon, well, I've never heard anything more difficult. Listen to what happened to him. You will forever have sympathy for a man preaching his first sermon. Ron Walters says this, will any of us ever forget our first sermon? As hard as I've tried, I can't. It was titled, Called to Abundant Labors. Obviously, the title was assigned. In fact, the whole notion was cooked up by the cruel busybodies on the Christian Education Committee. They thought it would be great sport if a couple of ministry-minded teenagers would preach on a Sunday night. You know, a church's version of American Idol. He said, the evening service opened as they always did, a little singing, boring announcements, an offering, and then it was our turn. The other guy spoke first. At 14, we were the same age, and I assumed of equal talent. I was wrong. He started smoothly, opening with a little joke. I feigned a laugh. He gestured confidently. The crowd seemed impressed. His three points were alliterated. He was quickly getting on my nerves. He quoted scripture from memory, followed by the pastor's loud amen. My competition was on a roll. Please, God, make him stop. When he finished, the place erupted with cheers. Then it was my turn. Stepping to the microphone, I felt ominously like walking the plank. I was too nauseous to be nervous. One final adjustment to my clip-on tie caused it to plop into the standing glass of water, spilling onto my handwritten notes, causing the ink to run. My sermon notes now look like finger paintings. The crowd began to giggle. My knees weren't knocking, they were missing. I had no joke, no outline, no rhyme or reason. Twelve minutes later, I was done. The church was besieged in cold sweats. My mother took her first breath. The pastor cringed, the angels wept. It was the worst night of my life. And God, in a still small voice, said, Get used to it, kid, I've called you to preach. Suddenly the words, he uses the foolish things of this world, had a new meaning. Balaam's donkey looked awfully familiar. So, now, what Ron Walters went through and this young man who had to preach in front of Spurgeon went went through, those were difficult, but they were difficult in a light and humorous way, and we all understand that. However, on a more serious note, a much more serious note, I don't think anyone ever faced a more formidable task in preaching his first sermon, than the Apostle Peter did on the day of Pentecost. And the reason for this being so formidable is the circumstances under which Peter had to preach this sermon. First of all, his audience was made up of some very rough people, made up of people who, some of the same people, not all, but some of the same people who just about 50 days earlier had cried out for Jesus to be crucified They handed him over to the Roman authorities. Some of these people were those people. In fact, Peter, speaking in Acts 2.23, says of of Jesus, he said, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
You're responsible, he said. Those were some of the people in his audience. In fact, Peter takes it a step further just a little bit later in his sermon by actually accusing them of murdering Jesus. He says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, he's telling them that they murdered their own Messiah. They murdered the God-man. So the crowd was made up of some of the same people who had been so very hostile towards Jesus. Secondly, Peter's sermon was daunting because some people in the audience were mockers scoffers. They had just leveled a great insult against him and the other 120 believers. They said, these men, these Galileans, they're drunk. They're intoxicated. Said that in verse 13. Third, Peter didn't particularly have a good track record when it came to courageously standing up for Jesus in a public setting. As you'll recall, about 50 days earlier, his last experience of doing this had been a disaster. He had publicly denied the Lord with cursings because he feared for his own life. He said, I don't know the man. Three times he said that. But here he was in an equally dangerous public setting, standing before thousands of Messiah-rejecting individuals who could very easily have attacked him and the 120 brought them before the Roman authorities for crucifixion, execution. But in spite of all of this going against Peter, Peter gave not only his first sermon He gave a great sermon, one of the greatest sermons in all of church history. And he delivered it with incredible boldness and courage, resulting in thousands of those who were once enemies of Christ coming to faith in Christ that very day. Now, I say that that Peter's sermon was a great sermon. Let me tell you why. I'll give you some insight into what a great sermon is. First of all, Peter's sermon was great because of its content, That's where it all begins. It was biblical exposition. By exposition, I simply mean explanation. Peter was explaining. That's really what exposition is. It is is pulling out of the text the right explanation, the right understanding, and in this case, of the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecies that Peter said is being fulfilled right now. So it was a great sermon because it was filled with Scripture. It was an exposition. But in addition to its content being the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, it was a great, a great sermon because its content was also Christ-centered. Every, every sermon ought to point people to Jesus Christ. Peter speaks of Christ. He speaks of four aspects of our Lord's life and ministry. He speaks of his life in verse 22. He speaks of his death in verse 23. He speaks of his resurrection in verse 24. He speaks of his ascension to heaven and his exaltation in verse 33. So great sermons are ultimately Christ-centered sermons. They they point people to Jesus, and that's what Peter did. In fact, at the close of this sermon, we read that 3,000 Jewish people came to faith in Christ. Notice verses 38 through 40, Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified, kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Next verse says that 3,000 were added. He just pressed them to come to Christ. He, He told them their need for Christ. He pointed them to Christ. So, Peter's sermon was great because of its content. Secondly, Peter's sermon was great because it was clear, it was practical, it was easy to understand. 
It makes no sense giving a sermon that no one but a professional theologian can understand. Peter's sermon was also not only understandable, it was relevant, it was practical. See, great sermons are understandable. So someone goes, oh, I get it, that's what it means. They can follow the logic of it. And it also has to have pertinent application to the listeners. And certainly that was the case with Peter's sermon because his whole message is intended to answer the question that they raised. How practical could that be? His sermon was to answer the question that they posed back in verse 12. What does this mean? What does it mean that 120 Galileans who are uneducated and have trouble speaking in the right dialect, what does it mean that we hear them speaking fluently in our own language? Peter addresses this question brilliantly, but very clearly using terms and phrases and expressions that they as Jewish people were very familiar with. He tells them that they, what they are observing in the actions of these believers has to do with the last days. They understood about that. And the last days involves the coming of the Messiah. They understood about the Messiah. He identifies then who the Messiah is. He's Jesus of Nazareth. The one who lived, the one who died, the one who rose, the one who ascended to heaven. The one who is responsible now from heaven of pouring out the Holy Spirit on these people. That's what you've seen. And his personal application to them is to tell them they're guilty before God for murdering their own Messiah. And he calls them to respond to Christ by repentance and to trust him for salvation. Listen, you can't really get much more relevant and applicable than that and pointed in your application. But listen closely, because the third thing that made Peter's sermon great was that in addition to being biblical and Christ-centered in its content and very clear and understandable and relevant, is this, it was also delivered with power, spiritual power, because Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. That's what made this sermon have such a profound impact on those who, who listened. It's evident that Peter is under the control of the Holy Spirit because of the boldness that he displays. He's fearless. This wasn't the case 50 days earlier. When a man is under the control of the Spirit of God, his sermons have power. They're not simply words. They're God's word. They come in power in people's hearts, their minds. Lives are changed. In this case, 3,000 people have their lives changed. Verse 41 speaks of them coming to Christ. And verse 42 speaks of the evidence that they really did come to Christ and were converted. Look at verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And notice the evidence in their lives. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So here were these people who 50 days earlier, many of them had hated Christ, had yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. Now they're believers. Now they're continuing in fellowship and doctrine and teaching and breaking of bread and in prayer. Now this morning, we want to begin to examine Peter's sermon, his first sermon. It is part of Luke's very logical and sequential unfolding of the events that took place on the day of Pentecost. I remind you, first, Luke told us that in fulfillment of Christ's promise, the Holy Spirit did arrive on the day of Pentecost. As a result, about 120 believers 
those who had been waiting in the city of Jerusalem for the Spirit, they were now indwelt, and they were empowered by him, and as a result, they started speaking in tongues. Next, Luke told us about the reaction to all of this by the people in the city of Jerusalem, those who initially heard the sound of this violent rushing wind, and then they heard the 120 Galileans speaking in their own mother tongues. It was not ecstatic utterance. It was not gibberish. It was a language, the language of various people groups around the Roman Empire. While some in this crowd mocked this phenomenon by accusing the believers of being drunk, most were just plain perplexed. They were confused. They, were, they didn't know what was going on. And they sincerely wanted to know, what, what is this? What's happening? And that's why they said at the end of verse 12, what does this mean? Most of the crowd had that attitude. Some mocked. And Peter is about to tell them what this means. That's what his sermon is about. He gives them, as I said, not only his first sermon, but he gives the first sermon ever in the Christian era. This is the first sermon. And here's the flow. I'll give you the big picture. The flow and the main points of Peter's sermon. First, he refutes the accusation that he and the other believers are drunk. He tells them it's, that's ridiculous. It's absurd. Then he answers the question of the crowd by explaining the meaning of the foreign languages that were spoken by these Galilean followers of Jesus. Then he brilliantly transitions into explaining about Jesus. His life, his death, resurrection, ascension. Finally, he closes with this powerful declaration that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And then he puts the pressure on them to respond to Christ by accusing them of crucifying him. So, that's the background. Let's begin now to look at Peter's sermon by seeing the first point that he makes. We're going to see how he dealt with this accusation made by the mockers as, first of all, he refutes their charge of drunkenness. Verses 14 and 15. But Peter, taking his stand with the 11, it means the 11 other apostles, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. But these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. Now Luke says that in a response to the mockery made by some, that they were observing a bunch of intoxicated Galileans, Peter as the recognized spokesman for all the apostles and the rest of the 120 Christians, he faces the crowd, raises his voice so as to be heard by all, and he addresses them. Now, we learned last week that when believers were filled with the Spirit at that point, they were supernaturally empowered. These believers were supernaturally empowered to speak in 15 different foreign languages. So the question is this, what language did Peter use? There are lots of languages all around there. Well, Luke doesn't say anything about the language Peter used. He doesn't say anything. But it's very likely that Peter spoke in Aramaic, a form of Hebrew. Why? Because as Jewish people, that's who he's speaking to, that was the language that all of them understood, regardless of of where they lived. If you look again at verse 14, you'll see that Luke tells us that in speaking to the crowd, Peter calls them, and I quote, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem. What's the difference? Well, it means that he's addressing both those who were permanent residents in the city of Jerusalem. Those are the men of Judea. Judea is a province. Jerusalem's 
the city in Judea. So permanent residents of Jerusalem and those who were temporarily residing in Jerusalem just there to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. Both of these groups would be very familiar with Aramaic, which was the normal language spoken by Jewish people when they conversed with each other. So speaking to them in their familiar Aramaic, the first thing Peter does is he dismisses this foolish notion, this error that that these people, including himself, are drunk. And he does it, folks, by appealing to common sense. Look at verse 15 again. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. Now, Peter says, and probably pointing to the 11 apostles, that these men cannot be drunk. Why? Because it wouldn't make any sense. It's only the third hour of the day. Listen, the third hour of the day at that time was 9 a.m., 9 in the morning, since the Jewish people of that day considered that the morning began with sunrise, which would be approximately 6 a.m. Therefore, the third hour of the day is about 9 in the morning. So what Peter is telling them is that their accusation of drunkenness has to be dismissed based on something that's just generally understood by by everyone, that people don't normally get intoxicated at nine in the morning. I mean, I know there are exceptions to the rule, but 120 of them, and especially Jewish people on a holy feast day, such as Pentecost, he's telling them that's absurd. That's absurd. Now, that's his way of addressing this. But I want to, before we leave this opening statement of Peter's sermon, it's not terribly deep. He just says that's ridiculous. Uh, Everybody knows that people don't get drunk that early in the morning. But I want to point out to you something that is most important. I want you to see the godly example that Peter sets for us in how he answered the foolishness of these mockers. Slanderous accusation. Because while your zeal and activity for Christ may never be equated with drunkenness, you will face ridicule. You will face ridiculous accusations about your faith in Christ. It is inevitable. It is inevitable. You may be accused of rejecting science if you believe the Bible and a six-day literal creation, as we learned at our recent Creator Conference. You may be accused of being a heretic, especially if you have left a former religion that bases salvation on good works. You have left that religion for the gospel of God's grace. You'll be accused of being a heretic. You may be accused of being intolerant of certain people because you don't accept their deviant sexual lifestyles as valid. How intolerant could you possibly be? You may be accused of being a religious bigot because you claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Listen, there are many things that you can and will be falsely accused of because of your faith in Jesus Christ and your commitment to the word of God. It is just inevitable. But how you respond to these accusations is most important because you represent Christ and as his representative, you are responsible to respond in a way that honors him so that you're a good testimony to those who attack you rather than a poor testimony by reacting in in an ungodly, harsh, and vengeful way with just some angry, defensive outburst. In principle, you are to do what Peter did in answering those who accused him and the others of being 
drunk. You see, what Peter actually did is follow the principle that he would later write down in his first letter for all of us to follow. That was a tough situation for Peter, wasn't it? He was facing not just a hostile crowd, but it contained people who didn't mind killing those with whom they disagreed. And there were hecklers in the crowd who mocked him. On top of that, Peter had folded earlier when confronted with hostility, so he didn't exactly have a great track record in the personal courage department. But God helped him to say exactly what needed saying. Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue this lesson on the next verse by verse. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Find out more about Lakeside at lakesidechapel.com. This program is a production of Lakeside and Verse by Verse Ministries. Visit versebyverseradio.org to learn more about Verse by Verse or to download or stream today's lesson or any of the hundreds of previous lessons on our message archive page. All of these files are completely free, but if you'd like to help us with the expenses of producing and airing these broadcasts, there is a giving page at the website that's convenient and secure. We're thankful for listeners like you who help keep us on the air. That's versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. Have you noticed how Peter dealt with the people who were mocking him and the other believers? He didn't ignore them, and he didn't attack them. He simply stated the obvious facts. Sometimes people ask about our faith by attacking it. Responding in kind really doesn't do much for the gospel, does it? So I hope you'll tune in next time to Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve Kreloff continues his Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.